0: Just so you know, it's okay to laugh, all right? If you have a Bible, I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I wanted to show you that to remind you all as you turn to this particular passage. Like knowing Christ, coming to Christ, being a Christian. The Christian life is not about how you feel, but what we know even when we are faced with passages of scripture that make us uncomfortable or make us ask questions they're not easily understood so i'm going to read these verses these are in the bible these aren't my words as we look at for our visitors my first sermon series here is the pastor has been looking at the what are called the pastoral epistles first timothy and second timothy and Titus, and we are in 1 Timothy, and we're looking at chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I'm only going to deal with verses 8 to 10 today, and here's what Paul says under the inspiration of God, and I want you to take this in and be honest about where your mind goes and where your feelings go. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. That in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, and likewise, so continue that idea of prayer, likewise also that women, while praying, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but that but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through trial bearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's all pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? There you go. It's all right to laugh. Now last week we started down this journey and I asked you to think about where your heart and your mind goes When you hear words like this, and some of the people here over this past week have emailed me or Facebooked me or we've had chats and have told me about different things that people said. And some people here, some of the the young girls said to parents, that sounds like God's saying boys are better than girls. Could. What do you do with passages like this? And you remember I asked you last week, how does the world see men or manhood? How does the world see women or womanhood? And then I asked even personally for all of us, how does the church see manhood and womanhood? Now, we learned that even entertaining these thoughts pushes back against our culture. Because we live in a culture where we're trying to blur the idea of gender at all. We are are living in a culture where we're trying to get rid of the idea that men and women are different in any way. In fact, you will live in a world where basically the only difference between men and women is biology. Because that's kind of hard to get rid of. Right? It's hard to get... And although, let's be honest, there are attempts. But reality is, except for the biology, we live in a culture that's basically saying men and women are not different in any way. And I started last week with this quote. Lorna Smedman, a professor at Hunter College in New York, starts her course every year called Reimagining Gender with These Words. My working assumption in this course is that gender is already imaginary in the first place. Meaning that it's a construction, a fiction that we all live and work with in our daily lives. That is a prevailing thought in our world. That gender is imaginary. Now, if we live in this very 21st century progressive world where we have learned and quote unquote evolved and we've done, why isn't the world a better place to live in in Western civilization and Western culture? And this is why John Piper and his comment, I think, is so good. And I was reading for the last month, I've been studying this and getting prepared to preach on this because I know how controversial it is. I know how many questions there are. And I have read blogs and books and articles and newspaper clippings and magazines. And I cannot believe if you in any way insinuate that there are differences between, and, between men and women that go beyond biology, the way the world vitrally attacks you. And on some of the things where John Piper was making, this guy was called anything and everything you can think of. In fact, his life was threatened, his family was threatened, his home was threatened, all these things. Because he said this, Confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. So for all of the sexual revolution, for all of the idea of blurring of gender and all these things, we have not found the utopia we're looking for. He says the consequence, rather, is more divorce more sexual confusion, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, more emotional distress and suicide that comes from the loss of God-given identity. Take that all in. Take that all in. Now last week we looked at how we approached the Bible and I'm going to get to that in the next couple of weeks. But then we broke down chapter 2. We realized that in... Chapter two, verses one through seven, there is the content of prayer. The content of prayer, what I prayed a lot about in the last time there as we prayed. We prayed the gospel. We prayed for the salvation of souls. We prayed for government officials. We prayed that we would be a church that are concerned about people, not just ourselves. I do not want this to be a church where we're just a holy huddle. No, this should be, this is like the locker room. This is not the game. Church is the locker room. This is where we get our pep talk. This is where we get the game plan. The game's out there. The game's in the streets and the neighborhoods and the workplaces and the schools of our city. This isn't the game. This is where we get the strategy for the game. And then we go out and we play the game. And we, we go out with the gospel and we go out with the good news. But now, since our topic is how do God's people live life? How is a church supposed to be a church? And I'm going to say it till you're sick of me saying it. You did not come to church today. You didn't come to church. We gathered as the church. The people are the church. And so now in verses 8 to 15 and beyond, we're going to look at the conduct of prayer. In verses 1 to 7, there was the content of prayer. Now we're going to look at the conduct of prayer. And I've always maintained this and always will. Right doctrine leads to right living and always results in right relationships. Just think of the three R's. Okay? Right doctrine, a right understanding of God's word will lead to right living. And if you have your right doctrine and you're applying it right and you're living right, it will always result in right relationships. And so last week, we looked at verse 8, okay, that there was the place of prayer, right? In every place, men and women should pray. And we learned that Paul is not simply saying some random abstract thought that you know wherever you are physically in this sense that it's supposed to be prayer. In our context, he's writing to Timothy who's going to the Ephesian church and he's telling them in church, as you gather as the church, you should pray. So what he's saying to Calvary Baptist Church is as we gather as men and women in the church, in every place, men and women should pray. And so we learned that there's no place where God's people cannot pray. And in the end, there is no place where they will not pray. And I pray that you can understand that. And then we had fun with the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer where he says, lifting holy hands. And we were asking ourselves, are we supposed to take the Bible literally here? Is this meaning that you can't pray unless you're lifting holy hands? And we learned that in the Bible, there's all kinds of posture of prayer. In the Old Testament, they bowed in prayer. In the Old Testament, they knelt in prayer. In the Old Testament, sometimes they lay down, literally lay down fully flat in prayer. In the New Testament, they often stood in prayer and then they raised their hands in prayer. Folks, listen again. It's here, Paul is not driving home an absolute practice. He's driving home a principle. All right? But the idea is that we do things together. When I said to you, let us pray, everybody knew here that we were going to bow together in prayer. We did it together. We did it as a community. And if you're like me, because I was raised around the church, and I've been in church, especially from kids and teenagers and adults, when you're in church and someone says, let's pray, and so you bow down in prayer, and then, you know, you're doing one of these. Or you're wondering, like, oh... And then, or he's praying, and you're like, hmm. "Boy, that was long." Or the music's only over now, and that long-winded dude. Oh my goodness, we're going to miss that reservation. And you and you can smirk and think it's everybody else. You've all done it, all right. I've done it. We've done it. Debbie and I have done it. You know, when you're pl- praying grace and you've got three kids and stuff like that. Deb and I have been doing it. We're wondering if our kids are all, uh, you know, heads bowed and we hold hands. And all of a sudden I look and then we catch each other's eye and we both feel like we caught each other doing something wrong. Right? We're like, oh, stink. Right? <laughs> but have you ever noticed what that tells you when we do that? That actually tells you we're not together. This is one of the things, while I don't think he's mandating lifting up holy hands, and just because some of you weren't in this service last week, and I want to prove a point, can everybody put your hands up? Just take your two hands and put them up. Just right up. Everybody, come on, do it. No one's going to burst into flames. Everybody do it. There you go. Look, 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 look at that. Look. Everybody's got their, look at this. Look, we're lifting holy hands unto the Lord. I wish I could take a selfie right now to everybody and just put it out there and out all of you. Go ahead and put, see, nobody blew up. But listen, you know what? You know why I think that's important? Corporate church prayer. If you you do this, it's hard to have your mind anywhere else but in what you're doing, isn't it? So the idea is that church prayer should be focused prayer it's not just whoever's up here speaking and you guys all well if he says something that catches my attention i'll listen no it's where a whole church men and women we labor together in prayer where what is being prayed we all want we engage our hearts and our minds and our attitudes in prayer that's what it means about the posture of prayer there's community in prayer That's why we teach our children to bow their heads and close their eyes and and fold their hands. It's not some religious form. We need to tell them when you do this, you're joining together with everybody else in prayer. Now let me tell you something. Mark my words. There's power in that kind of prayer. There's power in real community prayer. When we are knit together as one. And guys, your Bible is full of it. And so now we come to the icky part. All right? Let's just call it. All right? So Paul assumes, he assumes that the church is going to pray. He assumes that both men and women will be involved in that prayer. He assumes that a posture of prayer will be taken. For some of us, it might be bowing our heads together. For some, it might be we stand together in prayer. Who knows, maybe one day we'll all lift up holy hands in prayer. I'll tell you, my philosophy in life is I will kill you with small cuts. All right? So I'm going to keep getting you to put those hands up because one day we're all going to do it in prayer. Okay? And so he, he expects that there is this posture of prayer, but his concern is not about the frequency or the posture. But more importantly, in fact, most importantly... It's their attitude in prayer. So now look at, number three, the purity of prayer. The purity of prayer. Because that's what this passage is really all about. It's the conduct of prayer. And so now Paul gets to the heart of the matter. What I would submit to you is that transcultural, timeless principle that every church in every part of the world regardless of your social standing your color your gender your ethnicity no matter where it is these are the principles that must be followed and so Paul says I want men to pray without anger and without quarreling so men listen up we are to pray we're to be a praying group of men And we pray without anger or quarreling. Ladies, likewise. If you write in your Bible, underline or highlight or circle that word likewise. Because that means, I desire then that men pray. I desire then that women pray in this way. That women should adorn themselves, adorn themselves, wrap themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls in costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, both last week and this week, and Daniel picking out songs and Jennifer picking out songs, you will notice last week we sang this song that David wrote in Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, David said, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And here's the answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, how do you have that since we're all messed up sinners, every one of us? And I'm at the top of that class. All right. I'm the valedictorian of the sinner's class. All right. All right, that's what Paul said. Remember back in chapter one? Of, of all sinners, I'm the chief sinner. Paul had no problem saying he was the chief of sinner. How does he do it? Well, David says two chapters later in Psalm 26, I wash my hands in innocence and go around the altar, Lord. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, James talks about it in James chapter four, verse eight. And I think Steve will have this on the screen. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now, how many of you would get up and go, you know what? I'm feeling down. I need to pick me up. I'm going to go to James eight. Not too many people are going to turn to that passage and go, you know, that's really going to just set my day. I'm having a bad day, a bad morning. I'll I'll go get me some James 4. But notice what he actually says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. John would say, walk in the light as he is in the light, and you'll have fellowship one with the other. But now think about it. How do you walk in the light of a holy, holy, holy God without more and more of your junk getting lit up? But you see, when you draw near to God and you have the confidence that he will draw near to you, you can cleanse your hands and you don't mind calling yourself a sinner. You, you can purify your hearts and not be any trouble saying, I'm double minded. I screw up all the time. And my favorite passage of this, my hero of the faith is that beautiful Gentile woman in, in Matthew, who she goes to Jesus and she needs a healing for her daughter. And Jesus says, it is not good for me to take the food of the children and give it to the dogs. And you would think this woman would recoil. You would think she would say, You racist, you bigot, all this. And what does she say? Yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table? And what does Jesus say? (laughs) I haven't seen faith like this than in all of Israel. What was his point? She knew that it was absolutely perfectly safe to own what she was. Because when you own what you are, God fixes it all. You don't have to run and hide. You don't have to play a game. So James is saying, listen, when you draw near to God, you're not afraid to say, I'm a sinner. When you draw near to God, you don't have to be afraid to say, Lord... I know what I'm supposed to do, and I find it so difficult. I screw up. I doubt you, and I'm wretched about this, and I mourn about this, and I weep about this, and I find it hard because when I think about this, and then you, you humble yourself with, oh, Lord, I can't, and that's when you will feel God say, yes, but my son can, and he's done it for you, so you don't have to try anymore. You don't have to worry about your identity. You don't have to cling to stuff that doesn't matter. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but He washed it right as snow. Amen? Well, look at that. You're almost halfway to charismaticism. All right? You're starting to light up now. All right? There we go. I might even get a hallelujah before we're done. All right? So men, in our passage, He says, men how we function as a church, we're to come before God as a church in prayer, and he says, pray without anger. Pray without anger, men. And it doesn't surprise me that he puts that there at all. It seems that the problem at the church at Ephesus amongst the men, where they were pious when they prayed and poisonous when they spoke to each other. And you will notice that God is not nearly as interested in the posture of prayer as He is in the purity of prayer. And so when Paul mentions the outward sign of holy hands, he's actually talking about the inward reality of a holy life. It's one kind of unholiness that was especially causing problems with the Ephesians church, and it was the sin of dissension. Paul warned the church, therefore, to pray without anger or without quarreling. You see, angry words were being exchanged. They must have been because the subject keeps coming up. Paul talks about anger and quarreling to the Ephesians. He talks about it to the Colossians. He mentions it to the Romans. He mentions it multiple times in Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 4, in Titus chapter 2 and 3. James deals with it in chapter 3 and chapter 4. You get a theme here, guys, that maybe we've got some anger issues. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and 27, Paul writes this directly to the Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Now notice this. Be angry and do not sin. So this is not saying that, men, we will never be angry. But in prayer we can't be angry, and we are never to be angry that leads to sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I love this because this always pops up in marriages. Right? You know, Phyllis Diller, what she said, you know, right? And her marriage advice was, we, we never went to bed angry. We always stayed up and fought. All right? That was her marriage advice. All right? But it always comes up with couples and marriage counseling and dating. and You know, don't go to bed angry. But this was written to a church. This was written to men and women. This was, guys, don't come to church and pray to me, lifting up hands as if everything's okay when there are people in your own family of church that you really try to avoid or you really have issues with and you won't deal with it or you really smile and shake a hand. And see, anger comes in two ways. You see, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted. It's easy to see if I'm angry. I'm extroverted. Everything that I'm feeling is right here, right? I've told you this, if I get $5, if someone slips me five, somebody slipped me a card under my desk, under my office door, not too long ago back, and it was a beautiful card and a little thing from Deb and I to go out to eat, and I cried, and I bawled, and I called, and saying, like, oh, the Lord loves us so much, and people gave us something and stuff like that, and then the other day, I misplaced $10, and I called Deb again, I've done something wrong, Jesus is against me, I've lost $10, what am I going to do? All right, Debbie is the complete opposite. If I called Debbie tomorrow and said, we've won a million bucks, Debbie would, well, well, life will be a little easier. And if I called her tomorrow and said, we're broke, we're busted, it's over, Debbie would say, well, life will be a little bit more difficult. <laughs> There's a reason we're together. <laughs> All right? But the idea here is that men, whether you're introverted or extroverted, okay? You see, men that are extroverted... We we tend to do things where we 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 use our language and our body and our voice and we invade your space and we try and intimidate you. But introverted men do so by simply seething on the inside. Introverted men may smile while simmering with rage. Introverted men may uh, manifest this anger by withdrawing or avoiding or straight up lying that it even exists. And yet, you know, now a lot of guys miss it, but ladies will pick it up. If I had a nickel for every time my wife said, he's ticked. And I'd be like, why? Because he didn't fight with me. Oh, no, no, trust me, he's ticked. So men, you can do it whether you're extroverted or introverted, but you can't do it in the church. Either type of anger is sin. Pretending it doesn't exist in the church during the service and in prayer is naive and sinful. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, men, if we come to church and we are praying and yet we are holding on to anger and we are holding on to bitterness and we are holding on to a click mentality where some guys I like and some guys I don't like. You know what? That grieves the Holy Spirit and that means you don't have any power in your prayer. And so our prayers go to there and they get soaked up. I've often wondered, if I could take these panels and ring them out, how many prayers would fall down? That's reality. That's reality. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It makes no sense, does it? To pray in church with each other while hanging on to anger or sin of any type. Instead, we should be free and safe to confess our sin, to lovingly confront each other, and to be cleansed by God through His mercy and grace and love, when then we will pray with power. You see, Charles Spurgeon said this, Proud hearts breed proud looks and stiff knees. Soak that one in. Proud hearts breed proud looks and stiff knees. Stiff knees. And to truly understand how much God is not for this, in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon would write, these six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that means a proud look, a lying tongue. So in other words, what he's saying there by a lying tongue, understand men what he's saying, is not liar, liar, pants on fire in the sense that you just, but it's when someone comes up to you and says, hey brother, are we good? Oh yeah, we're good. And you're not good. When someone comes to you and says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, and you're not fine. Um, <clears throat> that's lying. Like my grandfather from around in Harbor Grace, to say, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. All right, that's lying. He says, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Now notice this one, and one who sows discord among brothers. Uh Uh-oh. See, I I think that we don't pray enough as a church, but I really believe that the reason we don't have prayer or power in our prayer is because, men, we're not truly united and we're hanging on to stuff and we're struggling with our anger. Oh, and by the way, commercial, there was no formal prayer meeting when this was written. There was no Wednesday night 7 o'clock prayer meeting when this was written. In other words, this kind of prayer happened when the church got together to worship. And that's why, without apology, we want to make much of prayer in our services. And then he says, without anger, and then pray without quarreling. Now, this word does not mean that we don't stand for truth or that we don't defend truth. For all of you that have known me for any short amount of time, you know that I love God's word, and I love to read, and I love truth. And I want to stand for truth. But it does mean our goal is not to win an argument. It means that our goal is not the joy of being right at the expense of someone being wrong. See, if your evangelism is, I'm right, you're wrong, and let me tell you about it, uh, don't be surprised when that form of evangelism doesn't work. But as D.A. Carson has said, and this is my favorite expression, really the gospel is this, we are beggars who have found bread who want to tell other beggars where to find it. That's the real gospel. That's real humility. That's when we are not so- to, 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 to just looking to be right at the expense of someone being wrong. And sorry, I don't know if my middle boy is here, but a, few, a couple of weeks ago we, we had a couple of young people over to our house for lunch. And we were, had supper and then we were sitting down, me and this other young fellow was about 18 and Jordan's 18 and we were watching Sports Center. and then a discussion about who was the greatest basketball player took place. All right. And my son had no interest in even really having the discussion. He wanted a scrap because he knew who the best basketball player was and he was going to make sure that me and this other fella knew it too. And ensued a great argument. And of course, who the ba- greatest basketball player is very subjective. I mean, just in case you all need to know, it's Shaquille O'Neal. Um, but um, it's purely subjective. I laugh at that because half of you were like, Shaquille who? <laughs> um, but, but Jordan had no interest in having a discussion. He wanted to win an argument. He wanted to be right. Men, there is no place for us in church to gather in prayer. When our only concern is I want to be right and I want everybody to know I'm right. That's not manly. That's sinful. There's not an attitude of humility. And guys, we need to be willing to pursue our brother. And this is where Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, I don't know when was the last time you looked it up, but you should in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18... Jesus says, if someone has hurt you or someone is in sin, you need to pursue them and confront them with their stuff. And it's not so you can go, aha, it's because I love you. I'm desperate for you. I want to protect you. Parents, you know what it's like. Some of you have little kids. We have a propane fireplace uh, at our home and the outside of it gets very, very warm. Now, thankfully, our kids are old enough now that they don't want to. But Debbie babysits some little kids. And we have a little girl that she babysits with Down syndrome, and she's just a beautiful ball of joy. And when you hold her, she pats your back and rubs it. But she's moving around, and that fireplace fascinates her. I mean, she is convinced that life will be gained if she can just put her hands on that fireplace and stare at it. But I know that will be the greatest source of pain she's ever known. So whenever she's going to go towards that fireplace without apology, I am going to pursue her and I'm going to do everything I can to keep her from that fireplace, not because I'm ticked or angry or because I want to be right, because I am desperate to protect her from hurting herself. So if you've been hurt or someone is doing something wrong, the Bible says, don't quarrel, don't show off, don't judge in the sense of, aha, no, 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 it's, it's, oh no. And you go and you tell that person, I love you too much. If you continue down this road, it's going to hurt you. And that's going to hurt me because I love you. And I need you in my life. And we need you in this church. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, uh uh-oh, now he's reversed it. See, before is if you were hurt, go and tell someone that they've hurt you. Now Jesus says, if you're here for worship and you're, you're here to pray and sing and do, and yet you know there's someone sitting in this room and you know you're not right with each other. You know there's something between you. God says, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go be reconciled with your brother and then come off your gift. You know why he says that? Because then you'll have powerful prayer and worship. See, if a guy sits over here and a guy sits over here and you're both singing and you both got your hands up and you can both pray eloquently and the reality is you both don't like each other, Jesus' response is, guys, I can't accept that. That's not my way my kids act. And parents, again, you know what I'm talking about. We have two teenage, well, we have two boys. I keep calling my oldest a teenage boy. He's not. We have two boys. Have you ever had this, okay, and and two boys and um, they scrap, they get into it. All right, and so you come down and you gotta break up the UFC championship that's going down, down in the in the family room or out in the yard or whatever, and you, you separate them and they're still swinging and everything, and you say you're brothers and you're supposed to love each other and you apologize to each other, and then you get one of this sorry, and the other goes yeah, I'm sorry too. As a mom or dad, you go oh man, you know what they really love each other. No, right there, every parent makes a choice. How much time do I have? Do I have time to go into this or will I just take that and move? All right? Guys, if we're parents and we think like that, how do you think the King of Kings and Lord of Lords thinks? When two Christians who have been saved from everything to everything come to church and go, yeah, I don't like him, but I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. God's like, yeah, but if you love me so much, um, I love you and him. And what really pleases me is when you both sing, "I love you, Lord," and you mean it about me and each other Now, my whole my whole hypothesis, hypothesis has been this: What would this city do if they actually saw a group of people act this way, where a group of men came together and we didn't bury our emotions or we didn't mask our emotions with bravado? or hide our emotions with our passiveness, but indeed we pursued each other, and we chased after each other, and we talked with each other, and we prayed together, and we laughed together, and we cried together, and we admitted our mistakes and failures, and we pursued God together. What would the Holy Spirit of God do then? I'll tell you what he'd do. There'd be churches all across this city growing immensely. All right? Now, ladies... Right, now I walk into places where people have fared to tread. Oh, and by the way, men, we're not going to have good corporate prayer and unity if you don't have good and consistent personal time with God in prayer. You're not going to come to church and turn it on and then go home from Monday to Saturday and just turn it off. I'm telling you, this is so simple. If men would simply stop, start reading God's Word and spending some time in prayer, it would revive the church. I'm dead serious. Because most of the ladies in here outpace you in ways that's embarrassing. Most of the women are leaders when it comes to prayer and God's Word. And if men would pick it up and pick up the Bible Monday to Saturday and read it and pray, God would revive His church. He would. He would. We have a tendency to rush into corporate worship. Now, ladies, you might say, now, Steve, listen, before you even get into this, that's not fair. Don't be angry. Don't quarrel. And now you're going to lay it on us like for seven verses. Like, that's not fair. Well, now, just two things. Hang on. All right. First, this was the situation in real life for Paul and for Timothy in the church at Ephesus. Second, this is not exhaustive. All right? This is not saying that this was the only thing that these people dealt with or these are the only things that men deal with. This is what we have to deal with there. This is not a determining stereotype of all men and all women. One need no look further than Philippians chapter 2 to find two women that couldn't get along and were angry and dissenting. Remember, you got uh, Eutychus and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, listen, tell those ladies to stop their fighting. So, this is not a stereotype. This is not, but this was the general rule. As one commentator says, men are more likely to agitate the church. That's just the truth. Especially when it comes to do- doctrine. Men are typically like that. They are critical and competitive. They tend to argue first and listen later. And I'm best, I get amens from the women over that one. All right? They would rather be right than be reconciled. They get angry when they don't get their way. And so the Bible reminds Christian men not to fight, even when we pray. But it was the norm at this church. And it's what God wants us to look at. So now, ladies, as we move into your part, you don't go, listen, well, this is not fair. This is not cultural. This is, listen, you can't do that. This is where you and I have to look at it and we have to say, okay, this is what God wants us to look at in the mirror of his word. And we need to bravely and know that safely and securely we can ask, is this me? Do I struggle with this? Oh, God, lift my blind spots and help me see. And James chapter 1 is pertinent for this passage, all right? James chapter 1, and these are my favorite verses in the Bible because these were the verses God used to save my soul. When I was 21 years old in June of 1993, on on a Saturday night, I read these words and God saved me. Even though I grew up in church, I went to Sunday school and youth group and Awana. I won all the awards. I graduated from a Christian school. I was a walking, talking encyclopedia of Bible trivia and lost as could be. And then God confronted me, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he saw but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty notice that the law of liberty and perseveres doesn't stop doesn't give up being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing and so ladies now paul says likewise so this means paul is still dealing with public prayer Which means he is teaching and expecting that women will be involved in public prayer as the norm of the church. And that's in keeping with Acts. Acts chapter 1. You've got 120 people, men and women, in the upper room. And they are collectively praying. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 4 when Peter and James and John are arrested and they're threatened and they're cajoled and they go back, the entire church gets together and men and women pray and what happens? God shakes the place. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter is in prison and the church is gathered, men and women, and they are praying. Now this one makes me laugh. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor because they're praying for Peter to get released. An angel releases him. He goes and rings the doorbell while they're praying. And the wee little girl goes down, opens the door and goes, Oh my goodness, that's Peter. Shuts the door and runs back. And goes and interrupts the prayer meeting and says, Peter's downstairs. They're praying for Peter's release. And you know what they say? No, you're mistaken. Go back and look again. Isn't that typical of all of us? That's why I love the Bible. I know it's true. No one would ever write that and make yourself look like an idiot. That's how you know it's from God. And they go down and it's, it's answered Prayer, you see this in 1 Corinthians 11, men and women praying, but like men have some struggles, so do the ladies. And so ladies, very quickly, he says, display God in how you dress. He says, adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, in the context of Ephesians, basically some people were coming to church dressed like prostitutes. They were. Somewhere coming, if you've watched old movies of of France and and, and, and the, the lordal system and the feudal system where you have lords and you have all these fancy banquets and people, if you want to know the modern thing, look at the Academy Awards. What is the, there's more, there's now the pre-show to the Academy Awards is longer than the show. There's more time and effort and energy spent on who shows up and what they're wearing and what their bling is and who made their bling and who made their dress and they spin and they twirl and they luck And, and of course that makes me laugh because most of it is rags. Most of it is how little can you have on and still call it a dress? Right? Paul says that shouldn't be in church. Your appearance is not what defines you or determines your value. Your love for God and others does. A Christian woman, listen, okay, now again, I can run faster scared than you mad, okay? A Christian woman doesn't go to church to meet men. She goes to church to meet God. A Christian woman doesn't go to church to be seen and noticed by other men or other women, for that matter. Church is not a fashion show. Don't be asking what makes me look the most attractive. Ladies ask, what gives the most glory to God? What can I wear and show that my heart's desire desires God and not the praise or attention of men or women? This is what he means. This is not you can't wear anything or you got to wear burlap. All right, he's not saying here, and this is how you got to interpret your Bible and understand your culture. Paul is not saying, all right, women, everybody get brown you know, newspaper wrap and wrap yourselves in it. He's not talking about burqas. He's not talking about, you know, let's just see the slits of your eyes and nothing else. He's not against fashion. He's not against good apparel. He's not against cleanliness. He's saying, don't make this what you are known for as you come to pray. Then he says, display God and where your priorities are, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. You see, what you own, ladies, your house, your car, your jewelry should never be in competition with others. Most of all, God. Yet God himself cares little or nothing for the outward appearance. You realize this, right? Remember what he said to Samuel in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel? When Saul had done wrong to say that he did right, and Samuel comes and the Lord says to him, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I will tell all of you, that are ladies here, especially those of your moms with young daughters, do you realize every day they get up and leave the house, from the moment they leave till they come home, they are bombarded with their body image and what they wear and how attractive they make themselves as the sum total of their value in this society. The one safe place should be church where every woman from the youngest to the oldest comes and she's not ogled and lusted after and desired, but treated with dignity and integrity and respect and honor. One of my favorite passages is to treat young women like sisters and older women like moms. And we should teach our young ladies that if a guy is always sizing you up, he's junk. Yeah, I said it. it. Michelle, give it to her. Yep, (coughs) Junk. Don't ever let them do it. All right? We have to teach our our ladies these. True beauty comes from nurturing the inward woman. So listen, ladies. Here's the questions you need to ask. Now I'm going to step on some toes. How much money do I spend on my appearance, on clothes, jewelry, cosmetics, and beauty treatments and the like? And how does that compare with my giving to the Lord's work? How much time do I spend in front of the mirror versus how much time do I spend on my knees? So when you come, ladies, to church, are you more concerned how everybody sees you? Are you more concerned that you see God and people see God through you? And finally, display God in how you serve. He says this, but that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. One lady wrote this book, I love it, Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. And if you haven't read it, it's well worth the buy and the read. Paul said that instead of dressing or coming to church to display yourself, come to church prepared to serve Him and others. Are you ready to come to church and just serve, no matter what it is? Even if you've put your time into the nursery, you've put your time into teaching. And the same thing's for guys. Guys. I was blessed yesterday to see a bunch of guys, quality guys, educated men, come and just flick lime around and pick up dirt and garbage and sweep and stuff like that. And they did what guys do, which was make fun of each other the whole time they did it. But listen, there should be nothing in church from guys to women. There should be nothing in church when you come. I don't care what you wear. That one Sunday you wear the Armani suit is the one time that I'm going to ask God to have somebody ask you to fix a clogged toilet. Are you willing? Are you willing? Because if you're not, now you know where your idol is. And so, women, if you dress yourselves up and you come to church and you're so dressed up that you can't serve, that's a problem. And the world is watching. The world is watching. And ladies, understand if a woman wants to become beautiful to God, here is the fashion statement she ought to make be adorn yourself with the proper of uh, godliness those who profess godliness with good works and think about the legacy of the new testament of the women that are there joanna the wife of herod stewart she was a generous uh contributor to christ and his disciples in luke 8 you've got priscilla and aquila priscilla was the wife of aquila aquila who discipled apollos that learned and eloquent preacher who some people say wrote the book of hebrews Timothy had a godly mother and grandmother. Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity in Acts chapter 9. And we hear about. Uh, Lydia and Mary, as they were prayer warriors, and Phoebe, who was a servant of the church, and Junia and Romans 16 and, uh, and Appia and Philemons, too, who, with their husbands, helped out gospel ministry through evangelism and hosted churches in their homes. You have the, the prayer of Mary and Anna and others, and we find women of persistent, reverential, bold, effectual prayer, and our passage says that women are to be learners, and we 're going to see that in the coming weeks. They are teachers and counselors and prayer warriors and wonderful administrators a vibrant part of church life and ministry and community just as the men are all in community but using these terms the scripture is not telling Christian men, women to make sure they're always out of style What is forbidden here is not having a hairstyle or owning jewelry or wearing nice clothes, but using such things immodestly or indecently. God doesn't want his daughters to be overly concerned about how they look. See, the church is not there to serve you. You are there to serve the others, serve others. And he expects, Paul expects that all men will struggle with different things and all women will struggle with different things. And so we need to understand that men and women will pray in church in a posture of respect and humility. But these things are expressed in different ways in different churches. The commitment, the principle is this. We don't do it in anger and quarreling. And ladies, you do it where church is not a place to show off yourself or your stuff. It is where men and women come and make much of God. And over the next few weeks, we're going to learn about two principles. As we get into, should women be pastors? What's the role of women? What's the role of men? What kind of men should be men? What's the biology? All these things. Remember, two principles, all right? Previews of coming attractions. Here it is. The principle of harmony and the principle of history. As you study for this, and we get ready for this in a couple weeks, know this, the Bible will never contradict itself. The Bible never contradicts itself. It won't say one thing about a woman here and then another thing about a woman here that contradicts itself. And the principle of history. God's word is consistent. And we will learn this. But understand. That the church is not a place for social cliques. It's not a place for groups based on finances or education. Or your job or your neighborhood. Or your color or your ethnic background. Or even gender. To get in the way of men and women embracing God's creative order. His redemptive order and his relationship order. To worship God and enjoy him. And as we said last week, here's what you need to take home and then I'm done. Some of you are like, finally. First of all, see that these verses offer hope for us in a fallen world. Paul is telling this church through Timothy and telling you and I here at Calvary if we make prayer a priority and we seek to make our prayer times here at church about God and what He wants and it's not pretend, it's not religious, it's not for show and stature and recognition, then God will not only hear our prayer, but He'll answer our prayer and people are going to start getting saved. Can I get a witness? That was worse than the first one. You see, listen to me. Every time we meet... Men and women pray for the salvation of people. Every time we get together, what if we started to pray for God to save people, for all people to know Jesus, for powers and authorities, for family members and husbands and wives and wayward kids and difficult co-workers? What if we were so filled with humility and unity and wonder at God's grace that we actually cried out in prayer for God to save people and expected it to happen? What if church was so much more about gathering to care for people and not to show off or to play church or to be the church, but not to worry about appearances or being in control or staying in control or trying to control, but trusting and actually living out 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Real love in the church isn't irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth and love, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Imagine what a church like that would look like. Secondly, see that in trusted obedience there is power and unity. When you and I pray with humility and we embrace what God has created us to be and understanding what we were created as different but equal, We will have all kinds of gospel unity, and that will baffle the world. And yes, we are going to be pushing it back against the culture, I agree. But we'll also draw folks whom God will save. Because listen, prayer coupled with obedience is very powerful. And finally, see that Jesus Christ is our greatest example to look to and imitate. It's not lost on me that Paul would say these things to the Ephesians. And at the end of Ephesians chapter four, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And then he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Steve, do we have that picture? Were you able to get that? Can you put, there we go. Be imitators of God as dear children. I saw that this week and I fell in love with that photo. Look at that. Look at this little one on her knees with her hand on her heart and just lifting her hand. And guys, listen, come on, right? If these little kids can lift their hands in holy prayer, can't we? Look at them. They're just just praying, singing. we're, We're supposed to imitate God like kids just imitate the people they look up to. He would finally say in Philippians chapter two, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the passage as we work through the roles of men and women, as we try to figure out how we live and be the church in the 21st century culture. Understand you look no further than the Trinity. Jesus Christ, equal with God, said, I will submit, I will humble myself by taking the form of a servant, being formed in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So as we walk through these difficult passages in the next few weeks, and we deal with the role of men and women in the church, we deal with how we're equal and how we're different. We deal with responsibilities and all these things. I want you to always remember the Trinity. You want the greatest example of someone who submitted of his own free will? Jesus And he counted it a joy. The creator became nothing for you and I. So we could become everything in Christ. Imagine what a church like that looks like. But first, it all begins with being able to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I I just lift up these hands before you and I pray that they're holy hands search me oh God and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me Lord I look out over this group of people and Father as my heart knows I am not at odds with anybody I love everybody in this room I bear no one a grudge there's no one I don't want to be with there's no one I don't want to do ministry with and do life with But my God and my Savior, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would convict us and turn us towards Yourself. Get us thinking outward and not inward. Father God, free our ladies, our sisters, Your daughters of the tyranny of a culture that says Your value is in Your body shape. Your value is in how much You can control or manipulate men. Your value is in how much money You make. Your value in is how much you can show yourself every bit equal to whatever guy can do, you can do better. Father, free our sisters, your daughters from this. Free men from the tyranny of being emasculated. Free men from the fear and the stereotypes that men are just big, violent ogres. And that men can be gentle and kind and soft-hearted and emotional. And men can study your word and be men of prayer. Free us out from our competition in our spirit and our anger, whether that's introverted or extroverted. Father, free us as men from bitterness and anger and free the ladies from the tyranny that what they wear defines them. Father, fill us up. And Lord, if there be one here who is asking questions about you wondering how can people even submit themselves to this how can they even talk about this how can they be so open and admitting that they struggle with all this stuff Lord it's because we need you we need you in our lives lord we are sinners and we are messed up we're double-minded and we weep and we are wretched and we mourn but we draw near to you and you draw near to us and father god I plead with you again to save souls if there'd be someone in this room who doesn't know you that they'd come to you and know the glories of being saved that this city would be shaken with the power of the gospel through the prayers of God's faithful holy godly people and I pray these things in Jesus name and all God's people said let's stand together and